Good morning, church. <clears throat> Got broken glasses. As Howard said, boy, is today a beautiful day. Like, you could have been somewhere else doing other things. And uh, maybe by now you're wishing you had, but um, I'm just really glad that you're here. You could be golfing, you could be raking leaves. Um, but you're here, and I believe that God has something that He wants to speak to you, to each of you, and uh, a gift for you. And so I just pray that God um, would speak and that we would all have hearts to receive what <laughs> He has for us. I don't know how pastor and staff got like a whole month of appreciation when like mothers get one day, fathers get one day, but I guess in God's good grace, he started, and, and tomorrow's the last day of October, and um, I have a lot of leaves in my yard, so... If you're looking for some tangible way to show expression uh, of appreciation, um, you can ask for my address later, but there's a lot of leaves on my yard. It was great to hear the choir. First time in almost three years, I just felt nice to hear their voices, so thank you, choir. Um, you can see before you here uh, communion, the bread and the cup that we're going to take together in a few minutes in, this, in the way that we have done for so long but haven't done in almost three years. And so this, we, we've been trying to like figure out again, how do we, how do, we do it? Kind of working through, through those details, you'll have to bear with us a little bit. But it's been almost three years since we've um, come to the Lord's table together and uh, in a more kind of su substantial way to partake. Um, and we're going to talk a bit about that this morning you know, history has left for us letters describing, uh, you know, letters written by Roman, Roman leaders in the first and second century, describing the small and yet growing sect of people that called themselves Christians. One letter, uh, which was written, described them this way. So these Christians, they have children, but they do not kill their offspring. I guess that was kind of peculiar to them. Um, in fact, history tells us that in Rome, if someone had an unwanted child that was born with a deformity or they just didn't want the child for one reason or another, it was common practice. You went to the Tiber River, there was this bridge, you would throw your baby into the river. It's what everybody did. And uh, history tells us that Christians were in boats underneath the arches of the river with nets ready to scoop out children that were discarded and wanted to raise them as their own. They have children, but they do not kill their offspring. They have a common table, but they don't have a common bed. How curious. These Christians, they're different. They're, they're sexually exclusive just within the marriage. And yet, when it comes to hospitality, they're utterly promiscuous. The way they share food together and eat around a common table. In fact, we know that there were three main accusations made against Christians back at the beginning. First, they were called atheists because, geez, they didn't, they didn't believe in all of these gods that exist. They just believe in one God, atheists. They were called um, incestuous. The rumors were that they were incestuous for after all. They called one another brother and sister, and they, were, they referred to themselves as a family. And the third thing they were accused of was cannibalism, because rumor had it that these Christians, when they gathered, they ate together flesh and they drank blood. 
but awful people. Atheists, incestuous cannibals. You know, what was strange and shocking to them can almost become mundane to us. I've partaken of this as long as I can remember, and I've lived a long time, right? Almost 42 years, in every month of my life, I've done this. I've done it so often that for me, it's just really easy to go into autopilot mode. Maybe you're like that. You know, sometimes we do things so often that we just don't know why we do them anymore. We just do them, kind of mindlessly. Heard a story of a little uh, girl who asked her mother, Mommy, why do you cut the ends off of the meat before you cook? cook it? The mother uh, told her she thought it was because it added flavor by allowing the meat to better absorb the spices. But perhaps she should ask her grandmother because she always did it that way. So the little girl found her grandma and asked, Grandma, why do you and Mommy always cut the ends of the meat off before you cook it? And the grandmother thought and said, well, it allows the meat to stay tender because it soaks up the juices better. But why don't you ask your nana? After all, I learned from her, she always did it that way. So the little girl found her great-grandma curled up on her lap and said, Nana, why do you cut the ends off of the meat before you cook it? And Nana answered, I had to. My cooking pot wasn't big enough. <laughs> you know? Some of these things, they just happen, and we just do them, and we do them, but we're not even sure why we do them. I remember in Blind River, you know, sometimes we see things so often we just don't see them anymore. I think I've shared this with you before. Uh, there was a big plant in the corner of my office that was dead. Someone came into my office and said, Rusty, why don't you water your plant? And I said, what plant? And they said, that plant right there. It was a plant this tall in the corner of my office, facing where I would face from my desk. And I saw it every day, but I didn't see that plant anymore. I didn't water it because I saw it so often, I just didn't see it. And so in a few minutes, we're going to do this again. But I don't want us to just go through the motions when we start practicing this. I want, it, I want us to know what it is that we're doing. And that's really what we're doing in this series, Better Together. This is the last Sunday, kind of week eight of this series, where we're trying to bring fresh eyes to what we do as a church when we gather. Why we do it and how we ought to do it. Because God isn't honored when we go through the motions so we've gone to Acts chapter 2 because in Acts chapter 2, we find a description of the church on day one of its existence. And that description of the church shows us seven or eight things that they were doing together from day one, that they were devoted to. They were devoted to listening to God's Word together. They were devoted to praying together. They were devoted to serving one another. They were devoted to praising God together. And it says they were devoted to breaking bread together. So as we close this series, and including last week, we've looked at two, um, two of the signs, the two signs that God has given His church. We call them ordinances, kind of a fancy church theological term, which just means things that God has ordained that we do. Two things that God has commanded His church to do that are signs of the new covenant of which we are a part as followers of Jesus. One of them we talked about last week was baptism, which we do once. And it's a sign of our initiation into relationship with God and initiation into His people, the church. And the other sign that God has given to His church to practice is what we're going to do today. And it's something that the church has always done, not just once, but regularly. And it's a sign that represents the continuation of our relationship with one another and with God. It's called, well, what is it called? It's called communion. 
It's called the Lord's Supper. Maybe you grew up in a church where it was called the Eucharist, Mass. The fact that it has so many different names is indicative of the different ways it's been understood and practiced throughout church history and even its practice, even this morning amongst the churches that are gathered here in Stonewall. So what is the Lord? I'm going to call it the Lord's Supper because that's what Paul calls it in the text we're looking at. We're going to call, I'm going to call this the Lord's Supper this morning, this sharing of bread and cup together. Um, and I just want us to take a few minutes to like come back to this and ask, what is this? And why do we do this? And how do we do it well? So the first thing we need to know is what we're going to do here has been established by Jesus himself. It's not human invention. It's not church tradition. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, he says, So then, whoever, um, no, verses 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I've also passed on to you. And then he gives him the instruction for the communion. What I received from the Lord, and you maybe know Paul never did meet Jesus Christ in the flesh. He had that experience of Christ on the road to Damascus. So when he says, I received it from the Lord, I think what he means is Jesus passed this on to those first disciples who are around that first table with the command to practice this. And this has been passed on to me, and now I pass this on to you because this is something that we have received from Jesus, established by Him that we are to practice together. And so let's go there to where Jesus established this act, this sign. We have it in all the Gospels, um, in, in the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, kind of in a fuller way, and I'm going to turn to Luke chapter 22, and just read the description, the record of this first meal Jesus had with His disciples. It's Luke chapter 2, verses 7. It says, then the day of unleavened bread, uh, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus said to Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. I'll skip to verse 13. They left and they found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and His apostles reclined at the table, and He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks, and he said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. We'll stop there. So this is where Jesus establishes this practice at the last supper he has with his disciples before he is crucified on the cross. And as he does this, as he has this meal, this Passover meal, which we'll talk about in a moment, he says to them, do this in remembrance of me. This, is, this bread is my body, this cup is my blood. Now, what did Jesus mean when he said, this bread is my body, this cup is my blood. Did Jesus literally mean, or mean that it was literally his physical flesh, human flesh, and it was literally his blood? Is that what he meant? 
That's how some people have understood that and practiced that. And maybe you grew up in a tradition that would be like the Catholic tradition where that would be their understanding. They have a big long word to describe that understanding that this, when it's blessed by an ordained priest, actually physically becomes the body of Jesus. It's called transubstantiation. Can you spell that? Whenever my kids, you know, they're learning to spell, they have to practice, Dad, give me a word to spell. I always test them with that one. Okay, transubstantiation. It's my go-to. It's the longest word in English I know. It literally means trans-substance, to change the substance. And so what it means is there are some people believe that this bread and, and cup actually literally becomes, even though the properties stay the same, if you were to analyze it, it still looks like bread and if you put it under a microscope, but, but the substance of it has been transformed. It's actually literally the flesh of Jesus and His blood. Is that what Jesus meant? Some have thought, no, that's not what he means. And so at some point in church history, they came up with something called consubstantiation. That's the, that's the second word I give my kids, which uh, just means kind of the confluence of substances, this understanding that really there's two things in here at the same time. One doesn't displace the other. There's two. You know, just like if you've been camping and you see a log that's bright red because it's full of fire, it's still a log, it's still wood, and yet even within the wood, there's something else. There's fire. In the same space are actually two things. And so some have thought, well, what Jesus means when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, is that there is a sense in which Jesus' presence in a mystical way is actually in this. Is that the case? Is that what Jesus means? Maybe people have um, come to that conclusion because of what Jesus says in John chapter 6. Some pretty shocking words, and it certainly shocked his own disciples um, and the crowd that was following him. John 6, verse 53. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. Can you imagine following someone? And this guy's teaching some good stuff. And then he says this. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. And that troubled some people when he said that. And you can understand that. Because even a few verses later in verse 60, it says, On hearing this, many of His disciples, He had many more than twelve, Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Um, or another way to say it is, these words I have spoken to you, they are Spirit and life. So when Jesus says that my flesh is real food, does he mean that this becomes his flesh and his blood and we are supposed to eat Jesus and drink Jesus? Well, I think what Jesus is saying there when he says, don't misunderstand me, my words are spirit. He's saying, he's talking about a spiritual meaning, a deep, profound spiritual significance that, are, that is going to be found in his body and in his blood, that they are signs that represent a profound truth. A profound reality. What do they mean, the body as the bread and the blood?
blood as the cup. I think to understand what Jesus is saying when He says, my flesh is real food, I think He's talking about not just feeding our body, He's talking about spiritual food, spiritual nourishment, spiritual life. Because, and, and I say that because we have to understand what it means that this meal that Jesus had with His disciples was called a Passover meal. Now, maybe you heard that word and you're like, what does that mean? This is why I find church hard, because I had words like that, and it's not explained. What is the Passover? So what was the Passover? The Passover feast was a, a day where God has commanded His people every year to celebrate something that God had done for them centuries before. So if you know the history uh, in, in, in the Scripture of God's relationship with His people, you know that the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh. But God delivered them in a pretty incredible way. While they were slaves, He, through Moses, gave some instruction. He said, I want you to take a lamb. I want you to sacrifice that lamb. I want you to take the blood of the lamb and actually paint that blood on the doorposts of your house because I'm going to do something tonight to liberate you from the oppressor, from Pharaoh. And He said, if you are inside a house that's covered by the blood of the lamb, you will be safe and I will liberate you. And that night, maybe you know how the story goes, how God snuffed out the firstborn of all the Egyptians, except for the people that were inside homes covered by the blood of the lamb. And he commanded them to have a meal, this meal where they ate the lamb and they had a bread and they had a cup. And um, it had to be unleavened bread, no yeast. This is typically why we have crackers here. It's because God said to them, make your bread with no yeast because it's not going to have time. I'm going to liberate you right away. The morning's going to come. you got to pack your bags and you're going to go because I'm liberating you. So they had this meal and the next day, Pharaoh said, get out of here. They took off. They made a way towards the land that God had promised, the promised land. God miraculously brought them through the Red Sea. They navigated through the wilderness and God brought them into that promised land. So God liberated His people from physical slavery. And he had them celebrate and remember that every year at this time with this Passover meal where they ate this lamb whose blood was shed. Celebrating and remembering God's liberation of his people. So, you know, it's not a coincidence that in God's plan before the beginning of time and how he was going to work out the redemption and salvation of us, it's not a coincidence that this meal happens at Passover because God is making a point there is a greater liberation. There is a greater lamb that is being sacrificed that brings about a greater liberation. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Through him, we are liberated from the power of guilt, the power of sin, and the power of death. He leads us into spiritual life, eternal life. Jesus, in his death, by His sacrifice, is our life. He liberates us. He is the bread of life so that whoever puts their faith in Jesus has life, is free from sin and free from the power of death. That's what the bread and the blood represent, this liberation that belongs to all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. So how are we to practice it? You know, it's interesting for something that the church has 
been lots of controversies, probably even wars fought about that sort of stuff. The Bible doesn't say a lot about how we're supposed to do it. It doesn't have a whole lot of prescription. It has just a bit of description of how the church practiced this Lord's Supper. What you see at the very beginning in Acts chapter 2 is when they gathered daily, they broke bread together daily. This was something that they celebrated at the beginning on a daily basis, but already by later in the book of Acts, that had changed a little bit. So that in Acts chapter 20 verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. See, it could be worse, guys. Okay? I'm just saying. That's why we built this on ground level. No windows to fall out of when you fall asleep. No concussions. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. So at this point, they had started to practice this whatever form that took, on a weekly basis. And so the Bible doesn't say this is how often you're supposed to do it because some of you grew up in a church, you, every time you gathered, you did this. And some of you, maybe like myself, you grew up in this church and it's something you do every month. We do it the last Sunday of the month. My previous church, they did it the first Sunday of the month. Some of you grew up in a Mennonite tradition where you do it two times a year. The Bible doesn't say how often. It just says whenever you do it, do it the right way. Whenever you eat of it, Paul says, um, you're supposed to eat it in a particular way. So he's he's less concerned about the frequency and more how we're doing it and why we're doing it. So we do this on a monthly basis. The Bible doesn't say a lot about the format. It looks like it was probably a meal. In fact, we have a letter from Pliny the Younger. He lived in the latter half of the first century. He was writing to the Emperor Trajan. Um, where he was talking about these Christians, he said about them, after having met on a stated day in the early morning to address a prayer to Christ as to a divinity, later in the day they would reassemble and eat in common a harmless meal. So already at that point, they would gather together uh, on a stated day. That would be the first day of the week. They would worship together. They would hear God's word together. And then they would reassemble later in that day to eat what he called a common and harmless meal, although we'll see that it's maybe not always so harmless. So it was probably a meal. Maybe this is the meal that in the little book of Jude, it calls it a love feast. They had a love feast. And it was not a meal that was designed to like fill our bellies and satisfy physical hunger. Paul says, if you're hungry, eat at home before you come. It's not about satisfying your physical hunger. It's it's about something you're doing spiritually. And so it was a meal that would culminate in a ceremony. And we're not exactly sure how it looked, but there was one loaf of bread involved, which was broken and distributed and shared by the congregation, and probably one cup that they drank from as well. But this is how Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 10, 17. He says, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. He's talking about this act, the Lord's Supper. So obviously, at the end of this meal, there was a loaf that they broke into pieces and they all partook of one loaf and one cup. And so Jesus said with his disciples when he gave them that bread, he said, take this and divide it among you. And so this is how we do this. We take this bread. In fact, this is one loaf made by Beyond Bread. Pretty good loaf. It's gluten-free, just so you know when we come to it and you're like, ah, I got celiac. It's all right, gluten-free. Just thank God you were born in 2000 and, you know, 2000s. 
So this has been divided. We're going to take from this one loaf together in a few minutes, but why? Why do we do this? I think the key word there is remember. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. This is the way that God has given us to remember what? Jesus said, me. This is the way that God has given us to remember Jesus, what He has done, who He is, and who we are in Him. And sometimes we need those regular times where we come together to remember, to kind of come back to like zero, right, to the foundation. Ah, this, this is who I am. This is what my relationship is. I've, I've heard, you know, given us a great marriage advice uh, that married couples should never stop dating. We're so intentional at the beginning, right? And then you get married, and then life gets busy. It gets a hold of you, and you got, maybe you got kids, and you got different jobs, and you got different responsibilities, and you're ferrying this kid there and that kid there, and you're pulled in different directions, and you don't really ever sit down and look one another in the eye and remember who you are to one another. So I remember back in Blind River, there was this one couple, they'd both been married before, and that had broken up, and so they wanted to do better the second time around. When they got married, they had a religious date night. It didn't matter, like, it, like you, you just knew every, don't ask Steve to be involved on anything every second Friday night, because he was going to say no, because he was with his wife on a date. It was just in the calendar, it's the first thing that went in there. And there's actually, I think, a lot of wisdom. Why did he do that? Why, why might that be a good thing in a relationship? Well, you do that to remember, right? To, to sit across from someone and, and to renew your connection. Be reminded of your commitment to one another. Rekindle your love for one another. And so God has given us the Lord's Supper as a way kind of to do that. When you come together, eat this meal to remember your union with Jesus Christ, to remember Him and the life that you have through Him. And that remembering is both backwards and forwards because normally we hear the word remember and we think it's in the past. We're remembering Jesus' death and His resurrection. But it's interesting. What did Jesus say when he gave them those instructions there, Luke chapter 22, let me just quickly go there. He talked about the future. Do you remember what he said? He said, for I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of heaven. So this isn't just about remembering a meal that happened, Jesus with his disciples on the night before he was crucified. This is a reminder of a meal that is to come in the future, that we have Written for us in Revelation chapter 19, it says a day is coming when God finally and fully inaugurates his kingdom. When we dwell with God, there will be something that's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. This great celebration, all of God's people together. This great feast. And so, when we eat together, it's just not just remembering what God has done for us through the cross. It's remembering what lies ahead of us. It's, it, it's remembering that, you know, we're not the people that are already at the promised land. You know, He's liberated us from, sin, from the power of guilt and sin and death, but that doesn't mean we've already fully arrived, right? Like those, those Jews, they had to wander through the promised land or the, the wilderness on the way there. We too, we're on the journey. 
We're headed towards that promised land, but God is bringing us there. So we look back where he brought us from, and we look ahead where he's bringing us to. And that's what we ought to remember, both of those. It's both a funeral meal and a wedding meal. We normally just think it's a funeral meal. It is, but it's a wedding meal too. Jesus, I'm not going to drink anything. I'm not going to drink the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you at that next feast. Because, boy, I'm looking forward to that next feast. And that's why, you know, it's a, we have this tension around the table. Is it a funeral meal? Is it a wedding meal? Um, are we supposed to be somber? Are we supposed to be celebratory? Now, did you have one of those parents that was like, this is all, we, we should be sad here because it's our sin that put Jesus on the cross so we should come in, we should just have kind of heavy hearts, and we should, we should be really somber here. And you know, it's good to be, come and be somber as we think on the death of Jesus Christ, but it's also appropriate to be celebratory, right? This is an act uh, of, of thanksgiving. This is an act of celebration. And so I think at times it's totally appropriate for us to come in more of a somber way, a little bit more reflective, and it's also really appropriate for us to come and just to make a lot of noise and sing praises really loudly as we take this together. They're both appropriate because this is both a funeral meal and it's a wedding meal as we remember what Christ has done and where he's bringing us to. But whether it's somber or whether it's celebratory, it's always got to be serious Paul says, take this with seriousness. It's important how we take it together. But why, why do we break bread together? Can't you remember God in your own home? Like, why do you got to do this here with other people? Remember how we talked about baptism? You can't baptize yourself alone. It takes two. It's the same with the Lord's Supper. You can't Lord's Supper alone. I mean, there might be exceptional times where you bring it to so-and-so in the nursing home, right? Because they're separated physically and it's a way of showing the unity with the body, right? But whenever you see the Lord's Supper, it's always together. It's always together. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says five times, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. So why do we do it together? I think it's because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we are the body of Christ as the church. His body was broken, and we remember His broken body, and we remember that He formed one body. We are His body. When we are united to Christ, we are also united to one another. And you can't divorce those two things. The Lord's Supper is the way that we remember not only that we are united to Christ, you could do that all by yourself in your bedroom. The Lord's Supper is the way that we remember not only that, that we are united to Christ, but that we are united through Christ. That God has made us one, and our oneness is supposed to be our witness to the world of the truth of the gospel. And apparently they weren't doing a very good job. Those Corinthians. Because he kind of took them to task. He said in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. So, you know, I'll do respect to Pliny the Younger. Um, the meal may be common, but it's not a harmless meal. Your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be divisions among you to show which of you has God's approval. 
to show your hearts. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. You think it's the Lord's Supper. You call it the Lord's Supper, but it's not the Lord's Supper, he says. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers, and as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say uh, to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not, uh, certainly not in this matter. So, so what's going on there? Well, you know what's going on? Um, division in the body between rich people and poor people, right? The well-to-do people, they either didn't have to work or they didn't have to work till late hours in the evening, and they had more than enough food. So they got together earlier, and they had a big feast, and they ate. And by the time the poor people, maybe the slaves, because, you know, the church at that time, it was full of every sort of person. Like, you had masters, and you had slaves, you had men, and you had women, right? You had Jews, and you had Gentiles, you had every sort of person in this one body. But some people in the church were divided in the way that they were taking the meal, so that when the poor people came later, when they got off work, the food was gone. They could not partake in the loaf. And he says, you're humiliating the church. You're eating in a way that's neglecting and doing damage to the oneness of the body. This whole act is to show how God has made us one, and we have love for one another. And the way you are doing it says exactly the opposite. For Paul said in, in Galatians, now there is no free or slave, there is no Jew or Gentile, there is neither male nor female, all are one in Jesus Christ, which is to say God loves everybody the same. God died for the person beside you and loves that person just as much as He did for you, no more and no less. God does not show favoritism. Whether you're rich, poor, it doesn't matter who you are. God loves you equally. God cares for you equally. And Jesus' body and blood then is the basis for our mutual love and our mutual care for one another and our peace with one another. As Paul says in Ephesians, God has made peace between you through the blood of Jesus. So at the Last Supper recorded in the Gospel of John, Jesus washed the feet of Peter and He said, A new command I leave you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. He who is greatest is the one who is the servant of all. This is my design for the church as my body. And so they were eating it in such a way that they were disregarding that oneness. They were not loving one another. So then Paul goes on to say in verse 27, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Hmm. Do not eat and drink in an unworthy manner. What does that mean? Maybe you grew up being told, if you sinned this week and if you didn't confess that sin and if you eat that, God's going to punish you. He's going to judge you. You've got to come here free of sin. Or, or maybe it's like you, you felt like it, it, to eat in unworthy ways, to eat, eat when you didn't feel close to God. Some of us may, may, may come here and feel like, I don't feel close with God right now. 
I'm, I'm struggling in some way right now. That does not make you unworthy to take this. That's not what he's talking about. This is a place for sinners, for those who need mercy. So what is he talking about? He's saying, don't eat it in such a way where you're saying we are one when you're not trying to be one. Where, you, where your words say one thing, but your actions say the opposite thing. Discern the body. Ask yourselves, am I living in unity within the body of Christ or am I showing a lack of regard to somebody, a lack of love and care? And that can take so many different forms, right? People can be divided along social, economic, economic racial lines, people in their, with their own groups, their own little tribes separated. And, and, and that was the culture that the, the Christians in Corinth had come out of when they were pagans. When they went to their temples for their feasts, the rich people got together and they ate better food and the poor people, they got together and they did their thing and then the engineers, they had the engineers guild, the engineers feasted together and then the doctors did their thing and everyone was separated in their own little group of people just like them. And Paul says, that's not the body of Christ. That's not the way it is. The body and the blood of Jesus have made peace. It is the basis for our oneness. Maybe that means a lack of repentance or forgiveness in a relationship within the body. Maybe it means within the room there's people in, in, in whom there is that brokenness. A, a, a reluctance to, to repent or a reluctance to forgive, and yet we take of the same loaf together. Maybe that lack of regard for the body can be just living in cliques. Have you, did you know that some churches have cliques? Apparently, this is a thing in some places. I don't know about here. But you know, like it's sometimes when you've got your little circle of people, hey, I've got my eight friends, I'm good, I'm content, I hang out with them, I talk with them, I do stuff with them. God brings other people into the life of the body, they're sitting by themselves up in the balcony, they're, you know, in the corner of the foyer, there's someone new, you don't know who they are. What does it mean to show out regard for the body, the oneness of the body? It means leaving your circle to bring somebody else in. It means being utterly hospitable, including others. Showing regard, showing that oneness in Christ that crosses all lines. And so when we come to the table, we have to ask ourselves the question, am I remembering who we are as the body of Christ? Not just am I remembering Christ, but am I remembering who we are as the body of Christ? And that's really important to God because according to Paul, God allowed some people to become sick and even die because of the division they were causing within the body. Like, that's, that's quite something. It, it, it's, it, he didn't say that they, he damned them to hell. He said it was a form of discipline to protect them and to protect the church from division because it matters so much that the church is one because our oneness is our witness, the truth of the gospel. So this meal may be common, but it's not necessarily harmless. It's really serious. And so we need to examine ourselves when we come together. And that's what I want us to do this morning as we partake of this. Examine ourselves and ask ourselves the question, am I loving others as Christ has loved me? 
Am I seeking unity with those around me? Because this meal represents two things. It's a remembering Christ's love for me, but it's remembering my love for Christ's body as well. And that's why we do it together. So Paul closed by saying in verse 33, See then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to all eat together. We're going to pass these elements around. And then we're all going to eat together at the same time. And we're all going to drink together at the same time as a way of remembering Jesus and remembering our oneness through Him. So let's not just go through the motions, church, as we come to this table. Um, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then I invite you to take part in this. I'll call the those who are assisting here at the table to pass the plates to come and join me. And I'm, I'm going to invite you into a moment of reflection while the, pay, the, the, um, the bread and the cup is passed. Here in a moment, while the bread is being passed around, just take a moment to remember Jesus, to reflect on His death. But not just to reflect on His death, to remember what is coming for us, the fullness of His kingdom. Um, and then just take some time to in remembering to thank, thank God and celebrate all that He has done for you. Let's pray. God, we thank You that in Your love for us, You sent Your Son, that all who believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God, we, we remember that this bread and this cup, it represents the life that we have through Jesus, through faith in Him that we will not live by bread alone, but by every word of God, that Jesus is our life, both now and forever. We thank you, God, for the life that you give through your Son. In Jesus' name.
this is the first time we've done this in a while, so, you know, working at the kinks. If you didn't get the bread and uh, you would like it, if you just kind of raise your hand, we'll make sure you get something. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Just think of that. He's talking about you. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Yeah, that's gluten-free bread. As these cups are being passed, recognizing that the Lord's Supper isn't just about us remembering Christ, but it's about remembering who we are as the body of Christ together. Just take a moment and thank God for the body that you're a part of. Thank Him for bringing you into the family. Just ask Him how He wants you to grow in love and unity within the body. Maybe there's something that he brings to mind, some way in which you are not showing proper regard for the body, something that you need to repent of or forgive in a relationship. Um, but just ask God, God, what would it look like for me to live in oneness in this body? If you didn't get a cup and you would like one, if you raise your hand, we'll make sure you get one. You know, this cup represents God's love for you. That's what this is. This represents the, the blood of Jesus, that he gave it all for you. So I don't know who you are for all of you or kind of where you're at, but this is what I know God loves you. And my prayer for us is that, um, I guess the prayer of Paul when he, when he said, I pray, church, that you may have power to grasp how high and wide and long and deep is the love of God for you. God's love is immense for you, but it's also immense for the person beside you, on your left and on your right and in front of you and behind you. Together we are one in Christ. 
In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together.